the very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is the whole state of things, true of violence without force This is the typical violence of Violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's discussion, just want to mention we have a Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider dropping us a dollar a month there, or if not, maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. We'd appreciate either route. But today we're going to be looking at Plato's Symposium, and I think it'll become evidently clear as we work through this discussion the relevance to the discussions we've been having with regard to psychoanalysis, but Taylor can probably fill in like on the philosophy side. I read this highly, highly through the lens of psychoanalysis. It's not a bad framework to have to look at Plato from the vantage point of Freud or Lacan. I mean, they they both Lacan is is perhaps sometimes more indirect with his references, but you know, Freud brings up Plato's symposium directly in uh, Beyond the Pleasure Principle, and I'm trying to think the other place, I believe. I didn't remember that, but I'm, so I'm glad you brought that up. Definitely Beyond the Pleasure Principle. I have to check the other source for it. It could be in Civilization and its Discontent, but it's probably earlier, actually. Anyway, yeah, Freud makes direct references to the symposium, and Lacan is never necessarily too far away from the ancients, even if Aristotle is generally his interlocutor, like in the ethics seminar, ethics of psychoanalysis seminar. With the symposium, you can make an easy leap, a direct step to Freud. And then, you know, obviously, as I've mentioned before with the Aristophanes speech, easily make a a step to like seminar 20, like we discussed. Oh, yeah, 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 totally. I mean, I think seminar 20 is almost like, it's almost like this would be an addendum or like- Yeah, it's the discourse on love, right? The modern interpretation because of the, you know, just Lacan's, you know, all discourses are discourses of jouissance, etc. Yeah, I mean, it's the discourse of love, though, right? I mean, right. or at least the, the seminar on most directly on love, even if love is kind of and in knowledge. the background. And I think knowledge plays, although not, it's not in the forefront here, but I think that's the subaltern. I think our knowledge and law are like the the repressed topics here to some degree i mean they kind of poke through i think but knowledge of the forms in a certain sense with the with the socrates and diatima speech and it mirrors some of the well i mean it mirrors some of the myth from the phaedrus but well i think in terms of the instruct the instruction of the young the young boy or the young man through the older like the transmission of knowledge and wisdom through that relationship obviously that's very important for lacan right to a certain extent, I, I think that, as you were saying, wisdom and virtue is is more is the particular form of the knowledge that's sure. underway. And insofar as Socrates claims that 
the art of love is like one of the the things he knows best that puts him kind of in well, the situation be... of the psychoanalyst, right? Who is the subject supposed to know with respect to love, which is our fundamentally fucked up, you know, precondition. All of those other discourses should contribute to love, right? Because that's the kind of thing that is behind the social bond is right to all of our other discourses, all of our other knowledge, whether it be science, medical, etc., has love as the ultimate expression, <laughs> let's say. Possible. Uh, it depends well, if you th- on, I mean, think uh, about it. Listen, how we take it. Think about it in terms of anthropo- uh, maybe anthropologically or sociologically, right? The whole, like, if you're thinking about, you know, ultimately, why do we want to heal a sick person? Because we care about them. We love them. We don't want to lose that person, right? We want to assuage our losses or in that sense. But, um, you know, I'm sure there's other better examples, maybe. For, like, Socrates and Diatima, it's... It's love that is what giving birth in beauty. It's mediating gods and men. It's that drive right. for immortality. So we can get into some of that. So I think in that sense, perhaps, you know, you could say love is the highest goal, at least from the standpoint of certain aspects of the, the speeches. But, you know, on the other hand, just really quickly, the notion of Eros, which is the specific type of love that's in play here if you look at eros in terms of the republic that becomes threatening because eros can lead to a kind of madness it can be tyrannical it can lead lead to instability not only within the individual but within the political order so there's an interesting kind of like tension to the point it's of the degraded, contradiction yeah of from the standpoint of a discourse about the republic which is meant for the whole public good versus these speeches in praise of Eros that is held in private by these by by a few chosen individuals who have a kind of prominence in the city so there is a totally different discourse in symposium than it's like like in the republic but in any case I think uh you know we could start with just one of the things that I think kind of gets overlooked sometimes is the preface or the introductory material to the to the dialogue, because Socrates is not the main interlocutor of the dialogue, unless you think his speech in praise of love is the most important, right? He's not the one setting the stage like he will be in a lot of the other ones. We have the, we kind of have what is called, we have like a frame within a frame within a frame, right? We have a kind of a nest nesting egg, you know, a matryoshka doll of dialogues, because it starts with Apollodorus, who has heard the story of Aristodemus, who doesn't doesn't give a speech in praise of love, right? Aristodemus is supposedly present at this gathering at the house of Agathon, which is 416 BC. He publishes his first tragedy. It's this big success. And they're celebrating. It's the second night of celebrating his the publication of his tragedy. And so the way the story goes is Apollodorus hears it. He had just told it two days earlier to someone else. So he, it's fresh on his mind. And he's telling an unnamed friend about this story that happened supposedly about 10 years prior, presumably right before Alcibiades' death, because Alcibiades was a, a pretty important political figure of his own. He was a general who 
had fought for Athens, but also fought for Sparta against Athens, had also fought in Asia Minor for a Persian, you know, like general came back and fought for Athens again, and then had to flee once again, was assassinated. This supposedly happens right before Alcibiades' death, because the interesting thing is why this story is suddenly, the story about these speeches on love is suddenly so important to be told that two days prior, Apollodorus is telling this businessman who's like wild to hear about it, you know, that Alcibiades was like the talk of the town. You know, he was like Athens, both kind of annoyance and pride and joy, depending on if you were for democracy or for the oligarchy, right? In any case, so, you know, this is a kind of a, a tale told secondhand by someone who heard it from someone else. And the guy who tells it, who's telling the story, right, and Apollodorus is supposedly with Socrates day in and day out and checking on what Socrates is doing and saying every day. So he's like this devout, fanatical, yeah. devote, devotee of Socrates. So we can already question an unreliable narrator to a few degrees, mm -hmm. not just in terms of, of his memory and of hearing the story, et cetera, because there will be points where I'll be like, I don't remember all the speeches. I'm going to skip over those. I'm going to tell you the best of my memory of what's going on. I've checked with Socrates and Socrates is the one who's supposed to give the stamp of approval. Of this is what happened. So that's another un unreliability because do we even trust Socrates? Right. And do we trust a fanatic do we trust memory? Mm -hmm. Do we trust Plato <laughs> staging yeah. all of this? Right. So, so we have to already think about this as what's called like metalepsis, right? Where you have frames within a frame. Plans within plans, man. Yeah. I mean, I we know talked... what that's like. <laughs> I'm just fucking around with Dune. No, you're good. I mean, we've talked, <laughs> we've talked about this, like in Heart of Darkness, the story is told by way of Marlowe you know, but Marlowe's story is told from someone else's mouth. So like, this is a narrative device that's, as you can see, as old as time. And I doubt mm -hmm. Plato was the first to do it. But that at least, I think, in my view, makes this, while it is a philosophical dialogue in the in a sense, and should be taken as such, we can't forget that it is a dramatization, right? Uh, like any other dialogue, but this one to a heightened degree. Gotcha. In any case, right? So Apollodorus is telling the story about Aristodemus, who at the time was supposedly also a, a kind of a follower of Socrates, which is why he's going around barefoot, meets up with Socrates just at random, and Socrates invites him to this banquet because Socrates is coming out of the bathhouse because Socrates rarely bathes, right? Because he doesn't give a shit about how he looks and he's wearing his fancy sandals. Normally Socrates is going around barefoot. So we know that Socrates is trying to go to this banquet to look his best, right? Which will become important, I think, as we start to discuss beauty. Yes, blah, yeah, blah, yeah. Blah. Uh, good call. I'm glad I uh, had glossed over that. So no, oh, yeah. it's, it's all good. And so that's perfect. That really yeah. fits into the Keats poem that I wanted to bring up at the end. Yeah, so uh, so Aristodemus is um, he himself mentions in the story at least as Apollodorus tells it mentions that he was um, he had thought he was the luckiest man in the world just going from place to place like a vagabond, but realized through philosophy that he was the worst of men. Kind of as Apollodorus himself says, right? There's this conversion of Apollodorus to 
fanatical philosopher and follower of Socrates. Aristodemus is in a very similar position. Mm-hmm. It's kind of kind of this cult around Socrates. So Aristodemus goes with Socrates to the to the banquet, the second night of the celebration for Agathon at Agathon's place. And Agathon is kind of an interesting name because it's kind of like in 18th century novels where you have every man as the character of the novel. Agathon literally is, it means good man. And so what's interesting though, is that there is a slippage between Agathon, good man, and to Agatha, which is the good things, which is what ultimately Socrates will discuss. But in any case, they're all hungover from the night before, right? Because they, all the people at the banquet are hungover from the night before because they drink. Presumably the only two who aren't hungover is Aristodemus and Socrates because they only appear on the second night. And it's the doctor, the good doctor, Eryximachus, whose name means fighter of erectations. So he like, as a doctor, his name is like, he fights, yeah. he fights off belching and burping. He'll provo- provide, you know, Aristophanes with a way of curing his hiccups. So I think there's a play. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Plato is playing off of his name, which would have been easily legible for a Greek. Mm-hmm. You know, for us, we have to think about this. And in any case, Eric Simakis, the doctor, is like, hey, we all drank too much last night. Why don't we take it e- easy? You know, why don't we sit around, just hang out and divert ourselves by giving praise of love? Right. You know, there's these connections between love and the and not just Aphrodite, who is obviously the goddess of love, but love insofar as wine, Dionysus, you know, is the god of intoxication. Also a god who, while male, is depicted as effeminate, you know, depicted as as having female, you know, features and is presumably love is a type of intoxication, you know, as we right. definitely hear from, from the Fedrists, it's a type of intoxication, madness, et cetera. So they all agree to go in turn, go in a circle, giving praise to love and giving speeches. And right before this starts, because it starts with Fedrists, who have brought up the dialogue to, you know, because love will also be, you know, it'll have its own kind of epistemological aspect in the Fedris dialogue. I won't talk about that right now, but Fedris gives the first speech. And before he does, I think it's important to note that Eric Samaxa says, let's send away the flute girl who's playing for us and, and she can go play for the other women. For the wives, yeah. Let's get the women out of the out of the room, just us men. Right. So that sets the stage. I've skipped some details, but I think that kind of sets the stage for the first speech, ending with getting all the women out. And we'll only have a woman come in through myth and through Socrates' story. Yeah, dude's night out. So we'll, we, we won't have another woman speak until Socrates, again, frame within a frame, recalls a speech that he heard later. But yeah, so Fedris is up first and uh, i'm gonna pause there because i just wanted to set the stage and give you a chance to kind of react to this like opening of the the dialogue or whatever whatever strikes your fancy i guess i just wanted to preliminarily you know just confirm okay so it's specific to eros that this conversation is in that context just because i just loosely wanted to point out i guess that 
the Greek the Greeks had a few different types of love that they differentiated at out. least three like, or four. Agape is the universal phileo. You could probably name philia. Philia is kind of a, a love philia. for an object. You could say it's, it's like what's philosophy? That's the philosophy root, love of right? wisdom, love of wisdom, right? Knowledge, etc. Right. So philia is more of an abstract love. Like we could say we love, I love the cigarette, you know? I mean, what's interesting, you're right about agape. It is seemingly more uh, universal, more sublimated, desexualized, whatever you yeah, want to yeah, call yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. I do think, though, that what's important about philia and eros is the fact that philia can also refer to what we might consider erotic love. But I think that philia has more overtones of, we could call it, again, more it's less concerned with the act and it's less concerned with the passion it's really eros is like passionate intense love yeah and and it's usually just dumbed down to sexual relations Mm -hmm. that can be the case as we see in some of the speeches where like with pausanias there's the heavenly aphrodite and the and the earthly aphrodite one is more vulgar one is more just about bodies one is more just about sex sure but Eros isn't just fucking for the sake of fucking. Eros is more passionate, intense, overwhelming, to the point like, of obsession love. Yeah, like one would think be like being in love, being obsessed, yeah. Love sickness almost, like love yeah. sick, I think maybe. Yeah, Bert, I think that's the difference between even if philia can have aspects of sexuality involved with it with that, while still remaining philia. It's really that intense, passionate, overwhelming love, which is why I said in with the Republic, Eros is kind of threatening to the stability of the city. If we're making an ideal city that's supposed to be stable, yeah, Eros is a threat. Just as Pausanias will say or that feminine jouissance or something. Per- like perhaps, that too, right? perhaps I'm not. You know, it's it's hard I'm just to say out a little. <laughs> you know, because I think that what's interesting about feminine jouissance is like. In the ecstasy of mysticism, you can see that intense passion. Right. But it seems like it's an apotheosized, a deified type of love that. A sublimation. I mean, I don't even know if sublimation captures it, man. You know what I mean? Like, I feel yeah. like that's the problem there uh, is that that kind of mystical love or that, ext- that ecstasy perhaps can't even be qualified by any of the, of, Right. Words. Well, I mean, that would go back to the feminine jouissance, right? It's on, you can't, it can't be. It's ineffable. Exactly. So I, I think it, I think it transcends Eros in that sense. But in any case, it's great that you pointed out that there are multiple words of love, but in, in terms of what the love is that they're praising, they're praising Eros. And to the point where Fedris will start off with claiming, talking about Eros as a God. Yeah. Because there is this sense in which that's an accepted point of view you know obviously there's the goddess of love aphrodite you know born from if we recall zeus castrates cronus right oh wait is that it i think so zeus castrates cronus i don't remember who castrates who there's a lot of castration involved (laughs) sorry on the chopping block (laughs) at least in one of the stories no cronus castrated uh uranus thank you I knew I was wrong. Uh, Zeus may castrate Cronus, but I don't remember. Zeus may just kill him. So Cronus castrates Uranus, throws his genitals into the Aegean, so to speak. 
from the foam rises Aphrodite. That's one of the stories of yeah. Aphrodite's. So, you know, love is born from castration. Let's just say uh, that. Right, yeah. myth, well, I mean, right? um, non-relation, uh, maybe. <laughs> or, but also you could, you could see it in, and this is just to anticipate, you could see in, you could see something similar in Aristophanes myth where Zeus splits the originally circular perfect right, body humans the androgynous humans that have both male and female parts and they're happy and self-sufficient but they're also terrifying they're monsters because they can threaten the gods he castrates them to a certain extent literally splitting them right so we, we can think of this love arises out of this you know to speak in lacanian you know terms right we we have this constitutive lack blah 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 we'll get to talk plenty about that but Aphrodite, or like the, ori the originary trauma, if we're going to Freud, right? Yeah, I mean the just like the, the kernel of tr the traumatic kernel of society or whatever, blah blah blah. Traumatic kernel of whether it be entering entering the the sphere of the big other, right? I mean that's that's how Lacan talks about castration. Yeah. In any case, what Aphrodite is the goddess of love. Cupid is normally her son that we think about. Eros is his name in greek right okay. so eris eris was a was a god too but you know it's obviously we're talking about when we're giving speeches and praise of love there will be this splitting between eros as god which is why like phedra starts off by talking about him even though he gives a different chronology from hesiod and not from some other myths where you know eros is born of aphrodite but then eros as the passionate love so there's a slippage between the God and what the God represents. Uh, in any case, so, you know, Phaedra starts with what? The line from Hesiod that's kind of abbreviated because it's not the full line. He leaves some shit out, which doesn't matter. But uh, it's so there's chaos. Then there's earth, which is a seat for all, for the gods and humans and mortals. And then love. And I think what's interesting about this genealogy is the fact that Love is not given birth to, is not generated, if you will, just is the principle of Genesis for everything else, including the rest of the gods and such. You've got three ungenerated principles, chaos, earth, love. And I think that this type of view of the universe is kind of typical of a kind of cyclical eternal return not the Nietzschean type but the the eternal return of you know coming to be and passing away affecting everything right yeah. and so you start with chaos you end back with with chaos and the cycle begins again in any case can we label this love like can we use this as a stand-in for desire itself or like a well, Diotima will do that. The speech okay. that Socrates gives through Diotima will basically make an equation between love and desire. Okay. I think that's implicit in the other speeches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I just wanted to... Because I think that would be the stepping stone to the psychoanalytic shit that I was reading from. Yeah, I mean, I, I would just say that I, I think that there's a sense in which it's definitely implicit in the other speeches, even to the point of becoming explicit, but it's very explicit in the logical steps that Diotima leads Socrates through a kind of Socratic dialogue. Socrates himself 
Yeah. It's interesting that Diatima does a kind of Socratic dialogue with Socrates and teaches <laughs> yeah. him this art of, of love that in a certain sense, love is directly equated with desire in her dialectic. Yeah. Interesting. Um, Cause I was thinking more like Spinoza just because of the, I guess the ethical component regarding love and like this dialogue or these speeches all kind of, a lot of them are revolving around this question of like, what is, what are the ethics of love of Eros, et cetera, right? What are its virtues? What are its, et cetera, like interrogating though that idea, right? That's the kind of we're getting from each of these different interlocutors. You're, you're bringing up the, when we talked to Michael Hart and he, what nicely defined Spinoza and Spinoza's love and, and joy, right? Joy is is an increase in our power to act and be to affect and be affected. Love is the recognition of an external cause in which we find joy, in which our power is increased. I mean, to, I act and to be acted upon, right? So, I mean, that's yeah. the Spinoza's idea of love. Right, is this recognition? I think that there there's a way in which that can be read. So, the ethics of love. This is a great way to lead into Phaedrus, right? Because I think Phaedrus has the most rudimentary and skeletal of the uh, of the speeches. It, that's why kind of he starts it out. I won't go into detail about it too much, but one of the things that he kind of points out is that love gives us guidance, you know, because you were kind of talking about love and knowledge earlier. So I think there, in terms of guidance, the guidance is knowledge of what, what one could say what leads us to act in such a way as to be as not to shame ourselves or our fellow countrymen right because he says you know it's Dude, within it's, the pre it's like a transference i think maybe between like it's almost a transferential relation between the younger man and the older man and the love relationship like yes you the older man instructs the younger man in terms of how to navigate and be a part of the social link or some Thing like that right like yeah yeah exactly and the proper the proper forms of expression of the forms to be make a little platonic joke there right right i mean I, I think that, that you're exactly right that understanding transference loosely yes if the if the if the older male with with the younger male is sort of love in the sense of a trans well like, a, i just a, a mentorship Right, because you're you're trying I just see to instruct this. the ways of acting in a, in a way that that conducts with virtue. Yeah, I was thinking of this as in a way to deal with Oedipus in a similar fashion to I I forget which culture we discussed a while back regarding like where the maternal uncle would act as the father figure for the young man because they're excluded from the sexual relationship between the mother and father like it removes that animus of the animosity between and the threat of the son yeah that's or something, that's, or something like that or like that, the resentment of the father by the son like it breaks that because the older man that's teaching you like they're kind of acting as a surrogate assemblance of the father you know a degraded form of the father that i don't know kind of fucks with the whole power relationship the bind of the, the double bind of the oedipus but i don't that was an anti-oedipus when they're discussing levi strauss you know analysis of kinship structures and you're right it's the maternal uncle who 
takes on this interesting role, we could say, of of mentor without any of the baggage of a father son right yeah, father exactly. daughter relationship. And this is why also it's kind of almost ritualistic for there to be these thefts from the maternal uncle. It would even the- go to like, whenever we spoke with Daniel Tut, he was kind of talking about these different, you find this surrogate father, right. In the social, like we all have to kind of find this right surrogate father figure that allows right. us to work through Oedipus or whatever. I think maybe that's kind of what this, the logic perhaps from a from like the standpoint of the socius or something like that if we're looking down from that level you can kind of see the sociological or anthropological methodology being utilized here or like the I mean, logic driving it i think you're very i think you're I very much no you're you're very much correct in how Fedris is setting it up and you're right it it is a kind of working through of the oedipus complex in uh indirectly right because as he says, love gives us guidance. It gives us a sense of shame and acting shameful and a sense of pride in acting well. And this is this is in relation to the lover, to the older man in relation to the younger man. So the, the older man is mentoring and teaching these principles of virtue and how to act correctly. Then it's also, as you said, transference or in the counter transference. But with the older man in the presence of the younger man, he's not going to act shamefully. That would be worse than acting shamefully in front of his friends or even his family, as he says. And he's going to conduct himself with pride and take pride by acting well and by acting virtuously in front of the younger man. Yeah, and he takes on the position of the master. In, in a loose sense, not, not in a bad sense. Well, I'm just thinking even, well, I, no, I mean, like, even in the, the sense of, like, the analytic session or whatever, right? Like, how Lacan kind of, you know, I mean, he just, he puts on the hat of the master, but it's not, re- like, it's, it's a simul simulacrum or whatever. I, I would I would say the subject's supposed to know rather. Right. Than, yeah. That, yeah. That's sure. a kind of a way of saying what you're saying, and I think that that's why Socrates is such an interesting figure to anticipate or just to put it out there right now. Right. Yeah. Socrates is always going to claim he knows that he knows nothing, so he's the subject supposed to know that he doesn't know. So yeah, but back to his tied to the feminist jouissance too, and like the thread of that, I think is one too that I want to emphasize later on i think that uh fedris so love gives guidance right so it instills virtues and this is why he says an army or city made of lovers and the boys they love would be the best possible system of society right because they would not act shamefully in front of their their beloved they would take pride in in acting well and he even kind of says uh no one will die for you but a lover even if she's a woman, as he says, right? Uh, which is as a nice dig at, at the feminine, as we'll see in these first three speeches. There is this, we could call it misogynistic. I think it's a literal type of phallocentrism because it is trying to elevate the love between a man and a boy, this relationship. And it really, boy isn't a good translation. It's, it's you know, it's, it's a young man, right? It's the pederasty is, is definitely... Even Pausanias says that before they have hairs on their chin, they shouldn't be taken as a lover because they can be led astray and seduced and taken advantage of. Just putting that out there as because this is going to show up, recur throughout this uh, this dialogue. And if we try to ignore that, I think we do a disservice to what's going on and it's not truthful. So I think that those are the main things, you know, for Phaedrus, the ideal city, if such a thing could exist without the reproductive capacities of woman, which is interesting that it's taken for granted 
as we've discussed a lot on this show, not just with Thomas Nail or in terms of Baudrillard, but taking for granted the reproductive capacities. Give you know, if if some re- if somehow men could give birth, then for Fedris, the ideal city would be young men or men and their and their uh, young uh, men lovers. They would die for each other. It's the esprit de corps that we we've talked right. about, right? It's that that would be an unshakable bond. And in a certain sense, because it would keep everybody in check, it would be so that everyone would be acting as honorably as possible. Right. Precisely because love inspires them. Which Um, is the whole point of, I mean, this is what coding, I think, right? Like this is social coding. That's an interesting way of putting it. Do you want to say a word or two more? Just in terms of the social bond or the social relation Mm -hmm. between individuals that are not in a familial that don't share blood ties right like how do we create a society that where strangers can can love one another as though they are family which would be a type of communism right like that would be the yeah social relations where there i'm i love you as a as my brother but we're not brothers at least not in that sense right yeah i I think that's where yeah. yeah trying to regulate society in this way where there is this emphasis on on the bond between individuals that are not tied in this familial relation, I guess. Yeah. Really all I kind of wanted to say was like, again, I'm thinking about this from like a sociological or anthropological perspective. The libidinal band, the Greek society as a whole, the libidinal economics of it, how are these ethical questions and et cetera? Like there that's what this is really about, right? Is this discourse of ethics, love, um, truth, beauty, and knowledge, I think, are all involved here. Yeah. So I just wanted to emphasize that a little. To get back to your point about coding the the flows of desires, I suppose it would be, it's hard to call it that except in a more literal sense, because it would be a kind of a a way in which love would, well, I guess it works. I mean, it'd be a way in which love would, would, inspire a code of honor if you will for libidinal economy you know there, there's a sense of of a almost like a like a samurai code or some shit yeah this, yeah well this, i mean yeah for sure it's, because... it's, it's kind of a bushido type thing where there is this kinda, like yeah there is this like honor code that naturally develops quote-unquote naturally develops in this ideal society that fedris is imagining so yeah i mean i, I think that that's but that's that's mostly Fedris's speech. To me, what's interesting is how the reverse of this seems to be more prominent, right? Like a lot of times, like in our modern myth or whatever, like love is the death of duty. Whereas mm, yeah. here, here love is the is the bond. Love creates a sense of duty to your your dutiful. Yes. I'm dutiful to my compatriot because they will protect me and I will protect them. And like, if I let them down, et cetera. I think you're definitely right. That's a good point to make that in Fedris idealized society without any of the women, there's this sense in which love inspires and gives birth to duty. And it is, it is one and the same with duty. You can't even really like separate it because the feeling of being seen acting shamefully by your beloved would be enough to deter and dissuade you from acting poorly. I mean, I think that that's definitely right. Since we're on this topic of esprit de corps and I guess the the martial relationship between soldiers, etc., I just want to read this from uh, God Emperor of Dune because 
in contrast to this notion where it's like the all male force that are all in love with one and each other would be the most effective fighting force this is saying this is like going against the grain that grain and saying no it's an all female force would not be would not have like i guess the tendencies to rape and destroy you know what i mean so it's kind of the reverse with regard to like this chaotic capacity of desire or madness or like being at the edge of that state of like an ecstatic state being at that edge right because cities being sacked violence and sex eros and thanatos are closely aligned let's say at least historically when it comes to the sacking of cities but anyways let me read this the duncans always think it odd that i choose women for combat forces but my fish speakers are a temporary army in every sense while they can be violent and vicious women are profoundly different from men in their dedication to battle The cradle of Genesis ultimately predisposes them to behavior more protective of life. They have proved to be the best keepers of the golden path. I reinforce this in my design for their training. They are set aside for a time from ordinary routines. I give them special sharings, which they can look back upon with pleasure for the rest of their lives. They come of age in the company of their sisters in preparation for events more profound. What you share in such companionship always prepares you for greater things. The haze of nostalgia covers their days among their sisters, making those days into something different than they are. That's the way today changes history. All contemporaries do not inhabit the same time. The past is always changing, but few realize it. The future Bene Gesserit army is the the analogy. I mean, it's almost like Herbert does the reverse and he kind of, he does an essentialism of obviously women being tied to the nature, right? And like men being tied to violence. So he's falling back on like a kind of modern chauvinism i guess in a sure. sense but i yeah. mean yeah it's kind of this interesting dialectic i guess between the the chaotic well here the the man is chaos and the woman is order but i think for the greeks it seems like it's the reverse for Phaedrus, who does socrates go to he doesn't go to a man to learn the knowledge of love he doesn't preach it himself originarily he obtains it in his discourse with diatoma It's something that he lacks as a man. He lacks the mystical knowledge or whatever of the – I mean I think that there's a problematic with that way of framing things is what I'm saying too on both counts. Yeah, I mean it contrasts starkly with with Phaedrus's and with, as we'll see, Pausanias and Eryximachus who all kind of praise male-male relations as this ideal – and nobler form of love. And so I think Socrates, and this is Plato's irony, right? You know, turns on its head where Socrates, if he's supposed to be the sort of master in the in the arts of love, where he learns his knowledge, right? He learns it yeah. from this priestess. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's part of the irony, I think, at work. And I think that's why Aristophanes has to be a transitional figure and why he also doesn't get to take his turn. His turn is taken due to a, a bodily necessity that separates him from the first three speakers. Because he's, hiccup, be much he's more, doing the hiccups, right? Yeah, he's the one the hiccups. He's going to be separated from the first three speakers who are going to focus purely on, on this male-centric love. And Aristophanes will be a transitional figure where we get the androgynous figure and the sort of pre-established harmony stuff. But I guess, you know, really quickly, 
before we get to Aristophanes, because I will have too much to say on Aristomachus. I think he's the one made fun of the most by Plato. That's just my reading. But Pausanias is, is a very interesting figure after Phaedrus. And, you know, he kind of, he wants to give, as I mentioned earlier, maybe before we start recording, he wants to give these self-serving reasonings for why, you know, pederasty should be looked upon as the, the highest goal. With Pausanias, you know, he wants to separate the two, two Aphrodites, because in his story, you know, Eros takes either Aphrodite, the heavenly Aphrodite, which is kind of purely male and older. That's kind of a love, an Eros that's a love of the soul versus this other Aphrodite, the common vulgar earthly Aphrodite that is basically for merely getting the sexual act done in the sense in which it's it's part female, right? And this is why it's more vulgar. I think I mentioned to you this is kind of like an antinatalist point of view, but in any case, I think that without really even going too deeply into Pausanias, because some of it is just not as interesting, except for maybe uh, the six aspects of love in a cultured society, I don't know. We could talk about Bazanius a little bit. I think he's interesting for reasons, for certain reasons. But, you know, I will say before diving into it, and then I'll throw it back to you before we kind of talk about some of these aspects. What's funny to me is since you brought up psychoanalysis, I was thinking if Heavenly Aphrodite is purely male and it's meant to not be centered around sex and the sexual and sexual intercourse. It's meant to be this elevation of souls, kind of like what Phaedrus was talking about, right? What's humorous to me is that Pausanias makes sexual procreation for the purposes of reproduction the perverse thing. Whereas when Freud is kind of going through the three essays on sexuality, his way of talking about the normal point of view is that anything that doesn't you know, that doesn't lead directly to sex for procreation is perverse. So there's a there's a complete shift with Pausanias where actually it's sexual procreation, it's sex for sexual procreation. Yeah. That is the perverse thing. <laughs> this makes sense because I said this in the uh, episode on the three essays on sex because due to the lack of teleos in the homosexual relationship in terms of offspring, there is, since there is no logical purpose, there is no ultimate end to it. It is based on a pure love that transcends a physical desire for immortality, right? There's a finitude to the relation, and finitude is what makes things beautiful, right? If, in a sense, that's what imbues a certain whatever, like creativity into the human is its mortality, yeah. whereas the gods don't have, what is it, mutability, right? Gods cannot change. Superman can't grow or change because Superman is already Superman. It's not interesting. <laughs> it's boring whenever someone is an eternal form, right? Well, it's it's this interesting. is what gives life its sort of it's, joie it's, de vie. It's probably debatable about the Greek gods whether or not they have changing characteristics. But yeah, for I guess the most part, true. but for the most part, you're right. They're more permanent, more eternal, etc. So I mean, I think that one of the first things that that pops out for me with Pausanias's defense of pederasty, as I mentioned again before the show started, he has an extreme view of male-centered 
relations where he even says it should be allowed for men to marry other men. I will just say like, this is not, even if the Greeks and this dialogue shows it, you know, had an allowed and even to use your word again, sublimated, celebrated pederasty, male, male relations for the most part, you know, as we've talked about, this was about an active passive relationship where a young man is, is being raised up and mentored, almost initiated into polite society, being taught virtuous actions, blah, blah, blah. And so this idea that men, that older men together would be something common or celebrated, that's not necessarily true. There were sanctions against it, somewhat harsh sometimes. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it wasn't universally applied right. in every case, but you know, it's kind of assumed that when you become a full participating adult in in Greek society, let's say, you know, a citizen in the restricted sense of male landowning, mm-hmm. et cetera, which is generally in your 30s or whatever, you're supposed to then take on your younger teenage male and raise them up. You're not necessarily supposed to, well, obviously you wouldn't have male homosexual male male relation marriage, but Pausanias is is the one who's kind of saying, like, man, we have to marry women you know, for these customs of sexual reproduction? Isn't this kind of a debasing of true love, which is a love of the soul, not of the body? Not of the body, yeah. Et cetera. It's not a jouissance of the organ. So in a certain sense, there are certain kernels of Pausanias' argument that we'll see in something like Socrates, for example, right? Which is, again, about a love of the soul. or itself, for itself. But it's not even any particular soul, right? It's the love of the forms, which is kind of... But in any case... There are kernels of, I think, each speech that we can see in either Plato's, if we give him one doctrine of love, Plato's view, or Socrates's, you know, the higher dialectic. But in any case, one of the things that I find interesting is, you know, after talking about common Afro, vulgar Afro, which is love between male and women or male and male indifferently, right? It's just about doing the sexual act and then heavily Aphrodite, which is purely male, he makes this point about, as I mentioned, that good men restrain themselves without the need for laws from taking advantage of young boys. And here, I think it's specific prepubescent boys who are pederasty as we think of it in layman's terms today, not in the kind of sense I've been saying it earlier, male-male relations, male-to-younger men relations. I mean, we're talking about aphibophilia or whatever, right? He's saying that's bad. Even Pausanias has limits. He's saying that's bad. And good men restrain themselves without laws, but we have these laws to keep the bad men, to keep vile men from taking advantage of boys before they come of age, let's say. They need this external restraint. And I think for him, this is a good thing. You know, you might think Pausanias with his unrestrained, I mean, he has some restraints and some limits. But in a certain sense, his arguments about these laws being a good thing is also for the fact that, you know, his argument is that young men, and again, young men coming of age, should resist as much as possible any man unless they can be taught virtue, unless they can be become a better man, let's say, right? And for him, the main criterion for this is logical argumentation. It's not how rich your suitor is. It's not how beautiful he is, et cetera. It's how, I mean, kind of 
like a, how well spoken he is, like a sophist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mentioned that this was self serving. Which is where the irony comes in with Socrates, because I think Alcibiades even specifically calls him out on. Calls him a sophist. Yeah, you're right. Well, does I'll... he? I just remember yeah, he that he specifically. I remember there's a, something he about does. irony that I pulled if I need uh, to. He calls him a sophist. Yeah. He talks about his sophistry, which we'll get to in a little bit. Okay, so we go from this about these external laws, right? And his way of th- seeing it is that the man with the best words should be the best suitor. And I think that's self-serving because he doesn't have riches, he doesn't have good looks, etc. He's kind of promoting himself as the best suitor. In any case, then he makes this kind of interesting, we could call it xenophobic statement about where he says, it is not shameful for people in these other countries, he mentions Alice and Boetia, right? These who would be considered quote unquote barbaric cultures, these other cultures. It's not shameful for them to take any lover because they're inarticulate. They don't use the logos to inspire, to seduce or to entice. Because they're more animalistic, they can fuck whoever they want. It's not shameful. They don't have proper manners and culture. Right. And he wants to suggest that unlike us in Athens, where we're more cultured and we have these restrictions and we know it's shameful to take any lover and there should be these limits and these laws, there should be, you know, it should be shameful for a young man to fall for an older man because, say, they have money, because then that just makes them a whore. It's shameful in our culture because we're about bettering ourselves, blah, 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 whatever. So it's a very kind of, Again, it's self-centered in a in a collective sense now, and as I said, it's a uh, it's a little bit racist. It's not his main point. I think it's more of aggrandizing Athens than necessarily shitting on others. But there's a kernel of that, right? But one of the things that I found, and I have this passage here that I had marked out, where I find his equation of the things that make us better, that better us as people and that make us strive for higher things. I feel like this is the best part of his speech. This is followed after this kind of xenophobic stuff about the other cultures. It's not shameful for them to take any lover because they don't really use the logos. They're inarticulate. They're more animalistic. So he says, by contrast, in places like Ionia and almost every other part of the Persian empire, taking a lover is always considered disgraceful. The Persian empire is... Now, that's interesting. Taking a lover... This is the different part. In places where there are absolute power reigns. So in these other countries like Boetia, it's not shameful to take a lover because they have more of like, let's say, a tribal type of power structure. Power is decentered. It's not center. It's not absolute. And they don't have logos. They don't have culture. But in places that impose absolutely, like the Persian Empire, he says, taking the lover is always considered disgraceful. So it's the opposite. The Persian Empire is absolute. That's why it condemns love as well as philosophy and sport. It is no good for rulers that the people they they rule cherish ambitions for themselves or form strong bonds of friendship with one another. That these are precisely the effects of philosophy, sport, and especially of love is a lesson the tyrants of Athens learned directly from their own experience. Then their reign come to a dismal end because of the bonds uniting Harmodius and Aristogonon in love and affection. This is where sublimation as a political force comes into play. Just to flag that, I didn't know right. I had more to read. 
No, yeah. And then the last thing he says is, so you can see that plain condemnation of love reveals lust for power in the rulers and cowardice in the ruled, while indiscriminate approval testifies to general dullness and stupidity. So you've got in the two extremes, under, under tyranny, it's always shameful to pursue love, philosophy, or sport because that emboldens us to aspire higher and to achieve higher uh, ambitions. And so it's a threat, right? And then indiscriminate approval of love in any case, like the common Aphrodite that he's disparaging, which includes men loving women, which includes all heterosexual relations in an interesting way, right? That's dullness and stupidity. So between those two extremes, taking no lover, taking any lover, there is the kind of narrow path of of Athens, Athenian, Athenian <laughs> the golden democracy. Path of... <laughs> yeah, the golden path of, of Athenian democracy, <laughs> where the best spoken, the best, the most well argued, the sophists will be the alpha males. And this is the six aspects that characterize Athens, the golden mean, the the middle way, where there should be harsh restrictions on the beloved allowing pursuit and and harsh restrictions on the uh and no restrictions on the lover pursuing right because you need to have like this buffer this obstacle to overcome in a certain sense he says uh the cis aspects of love in a culture society honor it's kind of like Phaedrus. it makes us avoid shame and pursue good actions honesty and openness right instead of skulking around and keeping love to yourself and in secret and repressing it you're able to express your love it encourages extraordinary acts love redeems what should be shamed and here he's talking about the lover pursuing the beloved it endows us with nobility and the gods grant lovers immense freedom right all of these things but again if you think about it his speech is supposed to praise love when actually his speech is praising the lover the specific type of lover that he happens to be, <laughs> you know? So again, it's self-serving. And um, and his main point, if there is a telos, this is the interesting thing. This gets us back to what you were saying. You know, when you were saying there's something pure about homosexual relations because they aren't subjected to the telos of sexual reproduction, which I think is a, is a brilliant point. Yeah, there's no predetermined outcome or even like potential for one other than love. I think that I think that for Pausanias he agrees, except that he substitutes a different telos. The the teleology of Pausanias would be the only justification for subjecting oneself. The telos, the higher goal, would be for the sake of virtue, for the sake of producing virtue. So you can see that Pausanias and Phaedrus definitely overlap in certain of their principles. Pausanias kind of fleshes out Phaedrus's ideas a little bit more. <laughs> I but hope also, you said flesh on purpose. Mm, exactly. So, <laughs> so young men should only accept lovers so as to be taught wisdom and virtue. Any other reason is shameful. If it's for beauty, if it's for lust. If it's for a jouissance of the body. If it's for bad. the jouissance of the organ. Yeah, if it's, for, if it's for money especially. Because there's a way in which Again, this is self-serving for Bosanius, but it also, I think it's true in a general sense that if the richest are the ones that get the most because they can lavish them with gifts, with gifts they bought with money, obviously then Bosanius is going to be low on the totem pole. 
in a more general sense, I think that it's not just self-serving. I think there's a kernel of truth in it that we would agree with, right? That marrying for money and I'm not, you know, we have terms like gold digger and stuff like this, which can be men or women, even though usually it's applied misogynistically. Right. Yeah. I mean, obviously that's looked down upon. I'm not going to necessarily judge anyone on that. And in the old days, individuals wouldn't even have the say. A lot of times it would be alliances made between families. And a lot of times those alliances are trying to not just consider, they're considering all the benefits, including right. financial ones. Correct. But also yeah. honor, prestige. Yeah. Those no, things are nobility. all like, it's almost like there's, you know, well, this- they're part, they're, they're part of the same economy. Yeah, for sure. It's like this match <laughs> has, well, the name is not quite so good, but they're rich or like this is an old historic family the name is whatever we might accept a little bit smaller dowry etc yeah so uh i would say that in a certain sense pausanias is is definitely right to single out virtue and wisdom as ennobling reasons for subjecting myself to love but again he's giving a discourse on the lover and what makes the like appropriate lover and the beloved he's not really in a certain sense some of the speech, but most of it is not about love. But I think that's what makes Pausanias so interesting. And uh, especially the hardcore, you know, women have cooties type of thing, right? He's like, he's like, ooh, gross. You know, like, <laughs> I hate that we have to marry women to to have babies. That's that's disgusting. Any thoughts or replies more on on his speech? I don't think so, but... I didn't quite note mine out by speaker as much as theme. So, no, I get it, and I'm just—I think the themes will. Um, we can definitely talk about the the broader themes. I, I think it's just what makes this dialogue a little bit more needing to go in chronological order is trying to hit each speaker and give them a give them a say. So, so next up. It's supposed to be Aristophanes. We mentioned earlier, Aristophanes has the hiccups, right? He has a, a due to bodily necessity, he can't speak. <laughs> Aristophanes is a comedian by trade, right? Or at least uh, in terms of his work. Am I right there? Yes, he's, he, he, he's, he's, a, a, writer of com he's a writer of comedies and okay. a poet. So if you contrast Agathon, who we're going to hear after Aristophanes, Agathon is the guy who published his first tragedy and um, may or may not have existed. The main source for his existence is this dialogue, oh, but he's the host of the banquet, right? He's celebrate there. Everybody's there to party and celebrate with Agathon for the publication of a tragedy. Right. So Agathon is the tragic poet and Aristophanes is the, as the comedian is the comic poet. And that's going to become important later. So Aristophanes is supposed to go next. He has the hiccups and says, Eric Zamakis, why don't you go next? And Eric Zamakis is like, well, by the time I'm done with the speech, maybe you'll, you'll be cured of your hiccups. Why don't you hold your breath? Or if that doesn't work, what, he has something else. It oh. has him try to sneeze or something, I think. He says, tickle your nose with a, with a feather and sneeze. And that cures him of his hiccups, as we learn when Aristophanes speaks. But first is Eric Zamakis, and he is... Um, if you think about it as six speeches plus Alcibiades at the end, he is going to be at the end of the kind of male dominated speeches. Although, but his is, his is unique in a certain way because he's going to be like the speaker because he's a medical doctor. 
he's going to be, let's call him the speaker of pure technics. He's the guy that is, uh, is going to be given technicism, if you will, its, its due, its center. As I said, I think Eric Samakis is being mocked pretty heavily by Plato because, you know, for Plato to a certain extent, there is some hostility to medicine. And I'll try to just briefly state this without going into it because it's a whole, there's a whole genre of literature on this. The main point being is that the reason why medicine is frowned upon by Plato is the fact that if philosophy is, let's call it the, the doctrine or discourse about living well, right? The, uh, the unexamined life is not worth living, as Socrates will say in, the, mm -hmm. uh, in one of the last dialogues. So philosophy is about living well. Medicine is, and this applies to the human body, but also to the political body as well. Because we can think about philosophy as political, if, you know, love on the political level is like justice in the Platonic conception, right? So philosophy is about sort of assuring harmony through justice, whereas medicine is about living at all costs. It's not about living well. It's about not dying. And I think that that is a kind of perversion or even inversion of philosophy's goals. So once medicine is applied to the individual body or the political body, and that is the sole means of and method of surviving, then I think it's to be frowned upon. I know this seems very strange to our point of view, where we have all these miracles of modern medicine, blah, 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 even though we could talk about healthcare in America, et cetera. That kind of gets us off course. But Plato's point kind of being, if medicine is reduced to the art of merely living for living another day, then it is bad. It's this dialectic between the ideal and the expressed or whatever, to some degree, I think, is undergirding I, the critique here. That's definitely seems to be underneath a lot of this is that the ideal is divine and the body is weak and disgusting all the deficiencies are in the body versus the ideal the ideal is the prop for we are we're degraded expressions of of the divine or whatever or you mean the body is the prop is that what you're saying like no the divine is, is the divine is the body what? is just the means to the end right for the ideal or something? right yeah 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 exactly yeah it's gotcha going back to the example of the love like it's totally metaphysical Let's not disparage the body completely. We will need bodies when we get to diatema speech. For the most part, I think you're right. There is this sense in which philosophy treats the soul. Well, I mean, just treats the body. But I do think we will have need of bodies. So let's not completely get rid of the body just yet. Well, I just <laughs> think like the underlying argument or like the underlying binary logic I'm seeing under the text, the subtext is that a lot of these comparisons are drawing this body bad, ideal good, or like form good, body bad. You're exactly right. We saw this with Pausanias. And I think we see on the opposite side with Eryximachus, because he's kind of a physicalist, technical, he's a technician of the body, right. right? The doctor. I think that in that sense, yes, you're right. There is a sense in which if medicine only treats the body just to keep the body going, 
rather than to elevate the body. That's the problem because to sublimate we'll the body, as we'll see with diatima, the body is a necessary step along the ascent to the forms. So it's not bad in and of itself. It's just right. bad if we stay on that level. Sure. So well, that makes um, sense. So yeah. So uh, one of the cool things, Eric Samarcus, uh, just the big broad points I, I picked out from him. Love occurs beyond the human domain and below in animals, plants, and gods everywhere in the universe. This is very kind of similar to... The social's already invested by desire. No, I'm just kidding. Well, I mean... But not really. (laughs) You know... I'm I'm kidding to hedge my bets. Desire is is cosmic. I mean, there's some sense in which Deleuze and Guattari do kind of make some of these claims about desiring machines extending, you know, if humans are the custodians of the machines of the universe there is a sense in which it's like trying to connect design machines back to this cosmic yeah flow through the body without organs you know there's there's something similar going on there but you know for i I think it goes back to the eternal return in the platonic sense that i was talking about of the cycle the physical cycle of you know from chaos to the ordered universe and back and i think eric samakis and fedris are one one of the same on that instance so what i was thinking too was about the fact that if love is universal and and is cosmic which sounds very nice and new agey to a certain extent it's very similar to the pre-socratic philosopher empedocles who talked about cosmogenesis in terms of cycles of love and wrath love being kind of the expansion and complexification and unification wrath being the uh the destruction and separation and division Right. And so you can kind of see that in how Freud tries to formulate Eros and Thanatos and beyond the pleasure principle. Right. Eros is about combining these larger units. Thanatos is breaking them back down. Right. So you can kind of see in Eryximachus a seed planted by Empedocles with this cosmic or even di- to this cosmic dialectic of love and wrath. Yeah. Go ahead. Or even to like go the dialectic between the drive and desire okay not the drive and desire per se but like the preservative drives and the death drive mm-hmm. just because i love the way that samu described the death drive as this thing within the organism that wants to live regardless irregardless of the self-preservative drive so in excess yeah. of the self something that exceeds even the yeah it's the undead it, drive it's the undead yeah, drive right? right yeah life that exceeds I mean, life yeah I totally agree with that, and you're definitely right. So for Eric Smakis, love is judged on the basis of the body and what promotes health. But here we have to, again, assert that for Eric Smakis, he's a technician of the body. And so health, in his sense, might not, would be, I think, contrasted with living well in philosophy sense. So we should, yeah. we should kind yeah, of... We almost have to bring in Foucault here. I w- wish I had thought about that. Might have been well, little can't can't, can't do everything. Can't do everything. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Quote: Medicine is simply the science of the effects of love on repletion and depletion of the body, which is just a kind of laughable definition, I think, for, <laughs> for, for for Plato. The physician's job is to distinguish love that is noble from love that is ugly and disgraceful. That's we saw that in Phaedrus. We saw that in um, in Pausanias. Right, two kinds of love: the the icky love between a man and a woman for babies or for households, and kind of pure noble love between a man and his younger lover. 
And I said, notice Plato's mocking the speaker a good deal. Everything is a science of love. That's basically how I summed up reading his, his, uh, his speech, where everything, any poesis, right? Because, you know, in, in Greek, even if poetry is the whole from which everything is a part, because poetry in Greek is creation, but it's specifically referring to writers, right? Like tragedians and comedians, the lyric poets. But everything else is considered a poesis. Any type of creation is a poesis. It's just interesting that poetry as a part stands for the whole, right? In the synecdoche type of metonymy type of sense. Eryximachus is kind of a poetaster, right? A bad poet of love. He's making everything into this technics of love, uh, whether it be physician is the is looking at the love of the body with itself or some shit, right? He could he's just basically. I think serving as irony, an ironic point. There's obviously a lot more we could go into with Eric Samakis, but we can go on from him. So he cures Aristophanes of his hiccups with the feather trick. And um, with Aristophanes, we get a myth. And now, you know, Aristophanes is like, I'm going to tell the story. You might see it as I'm just making jokes, right? Because I'm the comedian, so you might laugh <laughs> at me. But he's like, I'm trying to do justice to what we're doing here. We're trying to give praise of love. I'm going to tell the story about how I see Eros, how I see love, and it'll tell us something about ourselves through myth. And it's not meant to be funny. If it makes you laugh, all the better, but take me seriously. We've talked about this in other places, so I'll try to be quick, but we can discuss a little bit of it. He tells the story about the fact that the first humans, you had males, you had females, but you also had androgynous beings in the literal sense where you had, they had four arms, four legs, both sets of genitals, male and female in this kind of circular whole, this spherical, self-sufficient whole. And the way they would move would be by kind of doing um, handsprings, by doing, what do they call it? Um, cartwheels. Cartwheels. Cartwheel. They'd move doing cartwheels. Now, it's interesting with someone like Aristotle, the sphere as self-sufficient would have no need to move because if it's in its perfection, it would be right, motionless. Yeah. But in any case, I think there's this tension between yeah, yeah. the self-sufficiency of the whole, of the one, of this harmonious one, of the sexual relationship existing in yeah, the yeah, past. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very good. Versus, and because for Aristophanes in the past, there was a sexual relationship. That now made... there is a cut. There is a gap. <laughs> right. There's a chasm. There is a void. There so is if chaos. There, <laughs> if, if there was a sexual relationship in the past, in this Edenic past, let's say, right? Because it's kind of an Adam and Eve type analogy. Not exactly the same, but right. there is hubris in both cases, right? If the hubris was eating from the tree, which we talked about, the hubris of the androgynous spherical humans was to kind of challenge the gods, let's say, challenge Zeus for supremacy. And Zeus is like, well, we could kill all the humans, <laughs> but we kind of like them worshiping us, which <laughs> obviously begs the question whether or not they have become addicted to this worship or <laughs> whether or not they require the worship to continue existing and draw right, the power. Yeah. I think it's, Which it you, makes sense yeah. in the context of the spooks or like the critique of religion from Marx, right? That, like 
that's good yeah you're 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 bringing up Scherner here the there's a sense in which those phantasms those spooks the religious transcendence they feed off of our the transcendental signifiers etc they feed off our beliefs so there's a sense in which they draw this power so Zeus is like well the emperor has no clothes right it's like the hysterics discourse yeah exactly no you're right you're right there is the sense and so Zeus is like well I don't want to get rid of all of them and he like racks his brain and there's almost this (laughs) it's kind of a comic thing seeing Zeus being like I don't know what the fuck to do it's fucking Solomon logic too yeah so he's like we're gonna split them we're gonna split them all (laughs) down the middle They'll be less powerful. They'll have to find their other half if they can, because it's not guaranteed. So they split, he splits them down. Now, it's funny that Zeus is, we have these stories within a story. So Aristophanes tells another story, a myth. In the myth, he tells a story about Zeus talking to Apollo, because it's Apollo who he talks to. And if you remember, Apollo is the god of medicine. So it's interesting that one of the, he's also the god of music. God of reason? Prophecy. I mean, you always hear Apollo and Dionysus contrasted. Apollo's a lot, a god of a lot of things, including archery, music. I suppose you could add reason, but generally prophecy, right? Which is why you have an oracle to Apollo at Delphi. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Um, Makes sense. In any case, he's telling this story to Apollo. He's telling this idea. Apollo, I got this idea. Why don't I cut them in half? They'll be less powerful without their other half. So he cuts them in half, and he has Apollo sew them back up. It's very important that we think Apollo applying the medicine sews them back up. The signifier. The navel, our navel, is supposed to be the remnant of this cut. Yeah. Which, as we know... I mean, you can kind of see the cu- penis cutting the, the vagina and the breasts, it's cutting, But it's the umbilical cord, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's the wholeness of well, we, the, yeah, because the child, we were the child the in mother. the womb. Right. Yeah. Which is almost like a physical circle. Yeah. And very easily jump from that. And it goes back to the appropriating of the metaphor of sexual reproduction for the purposes of the speeches in this dialogue. That's what we're going to see over and over. We already saw it with Pausanias, but rejecting it with Socrates and Diatima, it'll be elevated to a trope. But in any case, yes, if anything, we're cut from the womb. So Apollo sews them up and and they go from being monsters, which I have a quote here. I have a fulfillment of Eros would lead to a race of monsters. So the existence of the sexual relationship is the monstrous, terrifying to gods, androgynous spherical beings. In any case, they're sewn up after being cut in half and Zeus does say, and if they keep if they keep fucking around, we'll cut them in half again, and then they'll <laughs> they'll hop around on one leg. In, in any case, you know their genitals are on their outside, so they try to hug and embrace each other. But the man is, you know, coming on the ground instead of inside the woman. So Zeus takes pity on them because they're so pathetic, and he turns their he turns their genitals to the right side, and that's this story about what is it? I have here Aristophanes quote, love is born into every human being to make one out of two and heal the wound of human nature. And of course, I only put anti-Lacanian here because it's very close to this Lacanian discourse that we just read on seminar 20, except it is, except, you know, with Lacan, he is wanting us to keep in abeyance to literally like hold at arm's length, this 
fantasy of wholeness of making one out of two. Yeah. Which which it's important that we have to see Aristophanes myth for what it is. If we see it as a myth that it is, then it may be closer to the Lacanian perspective. If we see it as a fantasy that doesn't recognize itself as fantasy, then I think it's anti-Lacanian or then it falls back into a kind of nostalgia type of thing, which I think it's supposed to evoke in us, but also supposed to, we're supposed to expel. Yeah, it's Here. almost like a forgotten knowledge of, I was going to draw like a crazy comparison to like the, someone has to play God, but in so doing, like the social aspect of that is erased or the relational aspect. And then it's like, oh, the divine right of kings, etc. Yeah, I mean. It's but that's still, a little bit you taking know, a kind of a leap there. It is interesting that. Just to clarify, something like, uh, you know, the emperor having no clothes, right? It's this idea that wards off the actual, like it's this fantastic barrier that prevents or wards off, in a sense, revolution or change, etc. Like it's the resistance. Yeah, resistance. If you uh, rise against Daddy Zeus, you'll be castrated. That's very directly kind of Freud's idea of castration. Okay, it's the, gotcha. It's the threat that the father imposes on the child because the child is desiring the primordial loved object of the mother and the father has to yeah, yeah. Lay, down, ha- lay down the law, threaten you with castration unless you get over your Oedipus complex. Now, obviously, Lacan transfers this to the realm of language and debiologizes it. It's not about the losing the narcissism of pride in our in our male member, that this is a constitutive thing of entering the, the realm of language and, you know, becoming sort of battered by the chain of signifiers, etc. I will say two more things about Aristophanes. One, he brings up the Hephaestus analogy, where he says Hephaestus comes to two lovers and is like, wouldn't you want more than anything that I just weld you back up? you know, into your primordial hole, because it's obvious that it's not sex that you want. And that's not what extinguishes desire, isn't it? Don't you need a technician to weld you back up? If Zeus cuts you and then you were sewn back up, don't you need a the god of technics to weld you back together? And wouldn't that be what you want? And it comes to be that Aristophanes, the truth of Aristophanes, as I get it, which I take a Lacanian way of reading it, is that love is not about sex, but something that cannot be said like an oracle hides behind a riddle. So there is this sense in which if love is not about fucking, and this is kind of the Hephaestus analogy that he, that he gives, like he's asking the lovers, what do you want? And they're like, hard not to say. But Aristophanes suggests maybe what they want and wouldn't it be great if they were welded back together. So when they die for all eternity, even in Hades, they're with their other half. So this desire for wholeness perhaps can't be put into words, but I think can be framed like the framing of, of fantasy, right? Because that's essentially what it is. I do want to get to Socrates because we have been talking for a little while. Agathon gives his speech. It ends up being basically this poetic thing. I mean, he doesn't really say anything much new. He makes some, some nuances. For sake of time, I will just say, you know, he ends his speech with this poetic flourish and the crowd cheers him. Not just for the poetry, which I think is implied, but because he's the guest or he's the, host he's the you know the reason for the celebration and i think plato is kind of mocking agathon a little bit for doing the poetic flourish mocking poetry a little bit 
you know, we know what happens to the poets in the Republic. They more or less all of them get excluded or expelled from the, the ideal city, except for those poets that like write poems about warfare, whatever would, you know, ennoble virtue and all that shit. So more or less the conservative poets would be kept. And now that brings us to Socrates. And I know we're moving kind of quickly. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, and I know we've talked a lot. And so we could talk more generally than just going through the speeches. Because uh, I don't even feel like we really have enough time to talk about Alcibiades. And he's the most interesting figure. In a certain way, we could have just talked about Alcibiades. So I do want to maybe pause here and suggest to the listener that we've built all the way up to i think the key the denouement of the whole dialogue which is socrates's evocation of another let's say myth because it's this myth of diatima telling him what love is about and really the important part i think happens after socrates gives a speech which is alcibiades coming in drunk and he's prompted alcibiades is prompted to give praise in praise of love to tell a story of love but he's drunk so he tells a love story his is completely different than the other six i'm just going to skip over socrates thing because we we could spend hours talking about what socrates does through diatima let's just reduce it to what love is is giving what all of us are pregnant in body and soul we naturally desire give birth in presence of the beautiful right this whole thing would take hours to unpack i think that we can say, as we said earlier, there's this direct equation with love and desire. One loves what one does not have, one lacks. And if one has something, we don't love it. We, we don't desire it. We desire to have it in the future, blah, blah, blah. So this is the whole, the whole ontology of lack is like encapsulated in Diatima's speech. I think it would take too long to go over it. But I did want us to give a chance to just... You know, Alcibiades tells a he tells a love story. He doesn't tell he doesn't give a, a praise of the universal as we had in Socrates. He gives his praise in the praise of a particular. And the particular is his love of Socrates, right? His falling in love with Socrates. And you know, there's a lot to be said about Alcibiades. One of the things I wanted to give you the chance to talk about, because we did say it, is we've talked a lot about the older man and the younger man and how this is a, a relationship of active and passive where the younger man is supposed to subject himself to the older man so as to be mentored and learn virtue and wisdom. And in that sense, he's passive. And this is a part of the history of sexuality that it's not about male, male or male, female, despite the first three speeches, it is about active and passive. The passive figures would be women, slaves, younger men in the Greek sort of <laughs> love. And so if Alcibiades at first seems like he's the passive, he's the passive young man who's supposed to be courted by Socrates, the suitor, and Socrates resists all of, resists seducing him, Alcibiades turns the tables and tries to act like the older man, continually inviting Socrates to come eat dinner with him so that Alcibiades can try to seduce him which also fails. So there is this last image, and I think this can allow us to open up and stop talking about the dialogue, you know, exegetically and actually talk about some of the themes some more, is Socrates comes across at the very end as 
you know, amazing as he may be and disassociated from the body as he may be in all of these extra, almost extraordinary ways, he comes across as the most unerotic of figures. So, and he's contemplating the forms, right, at this point. He's moved from the love of a particular body to the love of all, a particular beautiful body to the love of all beautiful bodies to then the love of the beautiful with a capital B, right? He's kind of transcended the the moral coil. Yeah, there is a lot of interesting reversal here with regard to Socrates and Alcibiades, I guess. And yeah, the reversal of the pursuit, but just to go back to this position of passivity, this is something that Baudrillard brings up in Seduction, mm-hmm. and he kind of reverses it and says it's like what Lacan says about the woman being sort of this or like, yeah, like I guess Lacan is placing so much emphasis on the phallus, whereas Baudrillard would say like almost like a woman. Well, I was going to say Lacan would also say the woman would have the phallus. Baudrillard, I think, would definitely say that what woman has the phallus woman is has the power because the passive means that you don't have to do anything you come to me because i'm the boss i've got the money i've got what you want so you pursue me so why should i'm god why do i need i I don't have to pursue you you. as you kind of reads it man believes or pretends to have the phallus woman masquerades masks herself as the phallus no one has it. It's just asymmetrical in a certain way. And in the sexuation diagram, as we talked about, woman with capital W or the crossed out is relating to the phallic position, but from the position of not all. So it is not necessarily about having it or not having it, because again, it's castration imposed in different ways. Just yeah, one yeah. constitutes the universal positively and, and one in a kind of exclusive non-exclusive negativity but yeah i like that way this way of thinking of man believing he has the phallus or pretending he has the phallus yeah right? i think there's a there's a pretend of male there's a simulacrum there's of, a simulating of, of having it whereas women ma- masquerades as it or masks herself as it as the phallus yeah but I wonder, like, do kind of like this problematizing, at least bringing it up as a foil to that is this idea that men are the weak sex because they, yeah, men are the weak. What was it? How was I? I was saying it. Because of the quasi-universal instantiation of patriarchy, they are the ones. As right. Nietzsche oh, yeah, says, yeah, yeah. Nietzsche says something, and I'll let you continue the thought. Nietzsche says in an aphorism that's famous, and it's, I think it's misread as misogynistic, when going oh, to meet whip. a woman remember to bring your whip. And the point is, if men were powerful or in power, they wouldn't need to exactly. back up their power. Once you, you know, once the father raises his voice to back up his power, he's already impotent, right? So I think that's kind of what you were saying. Yeah. There's, there's a way of trying to mask the impotence that is the symptom. So it's almost like instead of the primal father, instead of the horde killing the primal father, it's the horde gets together to kill the or to band together against women, against the threat of women. Pausanias is like, hey, why and Phaedrus too, you can see, why don't all the 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 men get together and kill all the women? Then what does the primal father have? Doesn't have anything. If you kill the, you know, you don't have a horde anymore. You you can't hoard the women if there aren't any women. Interesting. But yeah, I think 
the constitutive weakness of men with regard to power and satisfaction and knowledge is all it's all wrapped up together in this very messy kind of way that yeah and, i think and, ultimately and, like that's kind of what i'm compelled by in this particular dialogue is those implications i suppose my only suggestion would be when we're talking about men and women here we are talking about masculine and feminine positions not about biology we've already said this in, in previous discussions but just to reiterate it here for the listener yeah um, good idea to go to that though i think what is kind of interesting is the way that to go back to these notions of the different modalities of uh of human bodies i think he also brings up there's the earth and there's the sun but there's also the moon which is like this intermediary thing but i also want to bring up you know obviously there's a whole tied to madness with lunacy etc with this figure of the moon being involved in terms of the moon i know which i'm trying to remember which which dialogue it was but keep going with your thought it's aristophanes now here's why there were three kinds and why there were as a, why they were as i described them the male kind was originally an offspring of the sun the female of the earth and the one that combined both genders was an offspring of the moon because the moon shares in both they were spherical, and so was their motion because they were like their parents in the sky. It's kind of interesting to have the figure of Diatoma, who is presumably like this oracle. You know, there's the whole ties to like madness and the gods and lunacy. Like the moon is this intermediary position. I don't know mm -hmm. exactly how that would fit in per se, but... We know that the moon reflects the sun's sunlight. That's why it shines. Right. And as we've learned, at least, I mean, we're not... There's not a hundred percent consensus, but there is a prevailing theory about the origin of the moon, which was sort of in the inchoate earth as it was accreting a surface. There was a you know a a large impact from some sort of other body, yeah, like yeah. an asteroid, right? And the moon is supposed to be a satellite of the Earth, sort of losing a a chunk. Yeah, which you I know, think has been proven. I don't know if it's been it's been definitively proven, but it, but it is interesting that that is a prevailing theory, and that Aristophanes, whether or not he's thinking literally in this term or in this mythological terms, that there's like a, a kind of a, a truth in there. So yeah, so the the androgynous spherical beings would be of the moon. They share both in the earth and the sun. And in the Republic, when Socrates is talking about the cave myth, it's the sun that is the the beautiful is the sun of no the sun is the uh, offspring of the beautiful i believe no it's the sun that's the offspring of the good sorry i mean like they're they're related right i mean they're related forms yeah, yeah yeah the sun is the offspring of the good here i can read this bit this goes to the stuff a little bit that i wanted to dig into this is from seduction from Baudrillard. the feminine knows neither equivalence nor value it is therefore not soluble in power it is not even subversive, it is reversible. Power, on the other hand, is soluble in the reversibility of the feminine. If the facts cannot decide whether it was the masculine or feminine that was dominant throughout the ages, once again, the thesis of women's oppression is based on based on a caricatural phallocratic myth. By contrast, it remains clear that in matters of sexuality, the reversible form prevails over linear form. That's a super interesting little nugget there. The excluded form prevails secretly over the dominant form. The seductive form prevails over the productive form. 
femininity in this sense is on the same side as madness. It is because madness secretly prevails that it must be normalized thanks to, amongst other things, the hypothesis of the unconscious. It is because femininity secretly prevails that it must be recycled and normalized and sexual liberation in particular. There is a lot to unpack here, but you know, this goes to what I brought up with Fedris earlier, where um, you know, love is associated with a kind of mania and a kind of madness. Things that would be considered foolish outside of the context of love are acceptable within the context of love. Pausanias says something like this. He doesn't use the term of madness, but he, he kind of says, like, in any other case, we would be shamed for acting in such a way. But under, under the aspects, the auspices of love, this is why love inspires extraordinary acts, because they would be out of the ordinary outside of love. And so they are madness. And this is why Baudrillard are talking about madness needing to be uh, normalized because it secretly prevails is a powerful way of, it's threatening, right? I mean, it's threatening to the, to the status quo, to the majoritarian standard. To the phallogocentric. To give it its current name. You know, this is why he says, despite the historical agenda, I mean, because majoritarian standards aren't necessarily always going to be the same across history, but in terms of the stereotype across known history, recorded history, we can kind of generalize phallocracy, as he puts it. Yeah. So, you know, I think that that's important to note. And it, it kind of, I think this is part of the irony. Again, in each of the speeches, there is ironic twists. I think, including uh, Socrates and his Diatima myth, I think there's an irony in invoking a woman to teach Socrates the art of love. Because women are excluded from the symposium, from the banquet, to discuss love, right? You think you might want to have roughly 50% of the population to give their side, but but the minoritarian is excluded. Women being that minoritarian, again, not because of numbers, statistics, but because of positions of power and standard, right? right? Yeah. If the male the is if the man, the male is taken as the standard. So that is interesting that Socrates allows this priestess to speak for the feminine in a certain way. And there's all kinds of problematic stuff that we could go into there too, but he allows the minoritarian view to be spoken, which I think, again, we could talk about appropriations of sexual reproduction as metaphor. And I think that that holds valid and that, but I do think also what, Plato is trying to do then is align philosophy as a minoritarian point of view, as opposed Ooh, to kind of like La Ruelle. As vibe, well, right? well, a bit, right? Maybe I, I let me get to La Ruelle because that's interesting. <laughs> I, I would say that Plato is proposing philosophy being spoken, its truth being spoken from the mouth of a woman, even if it's through Socrates's mouth. He's being her a pure simulacra. He's being her simulacra. puppet. He's being her puppet or something, if you want. She's his muse. It's the minority position of woman that is correlative to philosophy's more minoritarian position. Because in a certain sense, in, in terms of philosophy's power, it loses out to poetry and loses out to sophistry every time. This is why two things. One, Plato, another irony against Socrates, the one figure that is most directly criticized is Socrates with the figure of Alcibiades, drunk or not. And Alcibiades 
raving like uh let's see the he's the orator of dionysus if you want to want to be he's the only one that's still drunk in this even if everybody else is hung over he's drunk and he's the one criticizing socrates and he's the one who calls socrates a sophist socrates's use of words is seductive and is selling and enchanting so i think that's one of the last digs as plato then kind of suggests what if philosophy were taken to be sophistry not that it always is at bottom sophistry but what if it were taken to be sophistry by whether it be the masses or alcibiades who is not of the masses he is like a general bourgeois yeah i mean not i don't bourgeois maybe not even good enough he's a man of power he's right yeah he is uh you know leading armies because plato is concerned with I mean, his his fantasy is the philosopher king. Right. So in reality, Alcibiades is a recalcitrant student because Alcibiades knows very well from Socrates' words. He's the one person, he says, Socrates is the one person that makes him feel shame, that makes him feel like he should be a better man and be doing better things. And yet, and yet, he knows very well. And yet, <laughs> the fetish. He, uh, he resists and sticks to the love of particular bodies, particularly the love of Socrates. He's infatuated with them. It's the point of jealousy and rage and anger. It's the point of madness, right? Because Socrates even says like, protect me from Alcibiades. He's gonna, he's gonna- (laughs) Yeah, come sit down in between us. He's gonna fucking beat us, beat me. He's gonna gonna fucking beat me, you know? And we do, as I mentioned earlier, like Alcibiades, his political- leanings were changing with the winds he fought for athens and he fought against that since athens and he fought outside of the greek state but plato's fantasy is this fantasy of the philosopher king so alcibiades as this recalcitrant student who is shown the correct path and yet fails to do it i mean this gives the lie to something socrates says says elsewhere which is that you know men would not do evil if they knew better Right, that knowledge would prevent them from acting immorally and badly, and this is given the lie. This is shown to again be an ideal and a fantasy. Truth um, and beauty and their correspondence and etc. Knowledge, right? Again, I just think those things are just so intimately bound up here, as though they were those, you know, anatomically combined humans that Zeus had. But Plato disrupted. shows that shows that dialectic to also be potentially be faulty right because Alcibiades is supposed to move in the dialectic that Diotima shows from the love of a particular body Socrates to the love of from a particular beautiful body to the love of all beautiful bodies to the love of the beautiful and he he can't he can't stop past that empirical encounter of the one fascinating he gets stuck he gets fixated right the fetish yeah Exactly. He gets, which is a kind of perversion if you consider the diatema dialectic. And so I think this is why at the end, another final flourish of the irony, the night after everyone goes to sleep, Socrates and Aristophanes and Agathon, Socrates and the two poets, the tragedian and the comedian are still drinking. And Socrates is just about to land his main point about why Someone who writes tragedies should be able to write comedies and vice versa, but the poets are too drunk and they fall asleep before he can make his point. So I think that that's important because I think this is kind of 
what the dialogue is doing specifically with the figure of Alcibiades. Alcibiades is a tragic figure. As I said, the dialogue itself is kind of written within a year or two of Alcibiades' untimely assassination. So Alcibiades is this tragic figure because he is so self-mocking in his, even if he's mocking Socrates, he's also not taking himself too seriously. And he's mocking himself. He's like, I can't believe, you know, I fell for this guy. He didn't fall for my good looks. I know I'm, I'm beautiful, but even I couldn't seduce Socrates. I can't believe he makes me feel like shit because I should do better. So like he is mixing comedy and tragedy. Uh, I think Plato is through the move of irony. And I think that's why we should consider the symposium, not just as a work of philosophy, but kind of what it's been called a middle work. But usually when it's called a middle work, it's chronologically middle. I think it should be considered a middle work because it is a work of, it is a middle work in the sense in which its dramatization is meant to prepare us for the drier, less literarily inspired dialogues like the Parmenides or something like this, you know, which doesn't mean that, that the Parmenides or the other dialogues are any less staged, just that this is supposed to prepare us for that more abstract and etherealized thinking. We're supposed to be moved by the comedy and tragedy in that figure of Alcibiades. And I think that the him- Alcibiades. Yeah, Alcibiades, <laughs> exactly. I mean, I, I think that that's, I think that we're supposed to see ourselves, not just in the friend hearing this at the very beginning, from Apollodorus, but I think we're supposed to see ourselves in someone like Alcibiades because he's the one figure that shows what it looks like when, yes. when we are in love. Right, correct. He's not yeah. just talking about it. He is showing it. Fools um, rush in, yeah. So there's a total difference between a discourse on love and the demonstration of being in love. And so Alcibiades is extremely important for giving context to something like the philosophical dialectic of Diatima, I really do think Alcibiades is supposed to be read in juxtaposition with Diatima's speech, because if Diatima's speech is this kind of, again, this kind of divine thinking where we can remove ourselves from particular bodies after we've dabbled in, you know, the encounters with a beautiful body to all beautiful bodies, and then we're able to contemplate the forms. Alcibiades can show us that very easily this doesn't happen, that philosophy is a rare and difficult thing, right? It's hard to go to work through our kind of particular attachments. That's good. I like that. I was not thinking that way, but I like, I like that a lot, particularly in that context of this is almost too, I mean, this is being a bit fast and loose with it but like there is a sort of group analysis going on in a certain sense like a type of free associate yeah. uh, free associative dia not dialogue but whatever this would be pluralogue i like the notion of a group session of a group analysis in terms of the group of privileged men and i say that roughly i mean these are powerful men men of means participating in a, in a private setting which but it's only... like there's something's being um, I guess something is being spoken that is more than the content of what is being said. Yeah. Here. Yeah. And maybe that's just the nature of the written dialogue. Maybe I'm giving that too much of a 
no, no, I think that's, I think that's good. And I will say that to talk about the working through of love, not just I mean, what with love the transference, is, but, but I mean, of, with of the love, trans- I mean, the yeah, transference with, between Alcibiades and Socrates is like an interesting little part. Yeah, of that too, right? I mean that that gives it that gives it a real life example that the other speeches just don't really touch. And uh, you know, it, without Al- Alcibiades bursting into the private session, because that's kind of how it happens, right? Is after Socrates gives a speech, there's this loud clamor, there's these, this drunken revelry, and Alcibiades kind of breaks into this peaceful contemplative session and real life bursts back in after Socrates uh, the real <laughs> the real I mean yeah you could say that and so I think that with what's interesting is that there is this tension for a kind of wholeness whether it be in Aristophanes kind of comedic sense in his mythical sense or in the sense in which there's a wholeness of removal from all erotic attachment in Diotima's dialectic through Socrates and the figure of Socrates. And there's also this tension of yet Socrates is still drawing in, again, kind of in this cult-like way, these followers, these people that are obsessed with him and in love with him. The guy who hears the story, Aristodemus, he doesn't give a speech, but he's called obsessed with Socrates at the time. And um, Martha Nussbaum says it really well when she's kind of reading this tension where she says, Eros is the desire. Eros is the desire to be a being without any contingent occurrent desires. It is a second order desire. It is a second order desire that all desires should be canceled. In the dialectic of desire that you brought up earlier, in the circuit of desire, desire is always desiring to continue desiring. And so, you know, this interesting notion of wholeness, which is a fantasy, as Lacan kind of makes clear, would be this second order desire that would cancel all desires, which gives us figures that Freud himself used, like the Nirvana principle, when he's talking about the satisfaction of a drive is to eliminate tension. And sometimes he's like, keep it at a minimum. Sometimes he's like, lift the vent. But sometimes he said he thinks of it as a complete evacuation that that's how he kind of reads the pleasure principles at times as a nirvana principle, as a kind of extermination of desire. Yeah, where there's no surplus, where it's all used up. I mean, that's what Baudrillard, I think that's why he's so into the poetics to remember, because like every term, all the syllables cancel out one another. The anagrams, yeah. The anagrams, right, sorry. No, Um, no, you're right. The poetics, yeah. Abolishing remainders. Yeah, I do want to read these three little sections because they go to irony and seduction just to highlight these aspects of Socrates and Alcibiades. It is going to be three quotes, the first one from seduction, the third one from seduction, and then I'll highlight the other one from our actual reading. It is substituted at the end of the determinate representation of sex as the flotation of the law that regulates the difference between the sexes. The ascent of the feminine corresponds to both the apogee of sexual pleasure and a catastrophe relative to sex's reality principle. And so it is femininity that is gripping in the present and the fatal situation of sex's hyperreality, as it was yesterday, but in direct contrast in irony and seduction. Now, I believe this is actually Alcibiades. I don't know what the fuck any of that means, but... (laughs) You can't imagine how little he cares whether a person is beautiful or rich or famous. 
in any other way that most people admire. He considers all these possessions beneath contempt, and that's exactly how he considers all of us as well. In public, I tell you, his whole life is one big game, a game of irony. So this is Alcibiades speaking of Socrates, who spurns his, what would you say, his attempts at seduction. And then I'm going to return to seduction here from Baudrillard. There is an alternative to sex and power, one that psychoanalysis cannot know because its axiomatics are sexual. And yes, this alternative is undoubtedly the order of the feminine. Understood outside the opposition masculine-feminine, that opposition being essentially masculine, sexual in intention, and incapable of being overturned without ceasing to exist. This strength of the feminine is that of seduction. I mainly just want to hammer home, I guess, this reversibility of these positions that Socrates embodies, this potential Lacanian notion of feminine jouissance that is a threat to the philogocentric order. You know, you could see this like literally play out with the figure of Socrates being killed by Athens, right? Because for what? For leading the youth astray with this irony. This, the youth. This Empire sophistry. Right. The youth. Yeah. Exactly. Which is kind of interesting, right? You know, if you look in the figure of Alcibiades, it's like there's a carnality or like there's an embodied desire that is supposed to be repressed, right? Like it's the feminine. Is it supposed to be suppressed? I mean, well, I don't, like, I don't know. Like I'm, I'm kind of thinking out. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I mean, like, 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 like in, like in, like in the dialogue, Agathon, whom they're celebrating, you know, the mm -hmm. tragic poet who holds the banquet, he's the host. He's remarked upon as, as being super beautiful, right? His name is good man, but he, he should be like <laughs> hot. He should be like hot dude, right? And then Alcibiades comes in. He's the only one that, that really could give Agathon a room for his money for how beautiful he's supposed to be. So it's interesting that Socrates is seated between them or yeah. that's, you know. <laughs> it, I mean, like, in the context so of. I mean, the Socrates. So well, yeah. I mean, Socrates is supposed to be in his 50s he's supposed to be like 53 or whatever agathon and um alcibiades are in their 30s right so they're they're really coming into manhood in athenian sense so socrates is an older man but they're all adult men and socrates is known as snub-nosed he's ugly i mean that's kind of how nietzsche puts it directly but he's he's basically ugly in body and it's right and it's not socrates who seduces Alcibiades it's Socrates words it's the words that it's the logos that seduces okay that seduces Alcibiades and this Good is why and this is why Alcibiades levels the charge of sophistry at, at Socrates and it's not necessarily and I think this is uh, Plato's irony to bring it back to irony seduction it's Plato's highlighting the fact that only following the words and not the method not the underlying form of the words is then philosophy sophistry Got is it. that if philosophy is merely taken for its rhetoric and not for the movement of the ideas if it's merely taken for the logos in its own masturbatory movement that's when it's seductive that's when it's sophistry and so i don't think plato is just trying to ironically say socrates is no better than a sophist i think it's that from Alcibiades' point of view, insofar as he doesn't know what to do with philosophy, which is this foreign body implanted in his 
soul that's making him feel shame, but he doesn't know what to do with it. And he doesn't know how to allow it to flourish and generate a philosopher. He resists that. He still vies for power, for political power and all these other things without being able to integrate. Because I have something, I have something good to follow up. You know, he's not able to integrate philosophy into that movement. He only considers the movement of the words that Socrates is sort of bombarding him with. And that's why he will claim that Socrates is this, you know, is is doing the sophistry. And he has these other metaphors about, you know, Socrates, we could call it the agalma, right? He's got these statues in him that are godlike and stuff like this, right, that he'll say. But go ahead. So this is Socrates addressing Alcibiades, and I think it goes to that very kind of phallic logic that you were kind of skirting towards. Dear Alcibiades, if you are right in what you say about me, you are already more accomplished than you think. If I really have in me the power to make you a better man, then you can see in me a beauty that is really beyond description and makes your own remarkable good looks pale in comparison. But then... Is this a fair exchange that you propose? You seem to me to want more than your proper share. You offer me the merest appearance of beauty, and in return, you want the thing itself, gold in exchange for bronze. That's Socrates' biggest insult to Alcibiades. It's like, okay, you claim I can make you a better man. And I've already described how that tension is in Alcibiades, because whether or not he's able to integrate that and do that is another thing. That's not Socrates' role. His role is to inspire these feelings of virtue and whatever. What You can lead a horse to water. But Socrates is like, okay, so I promote in you, I inspire in you the desire to become a better man. That makes me beautiful. You, right. on the other hand, you who know you are a sexy motherfucker and are gorgeous, you can't make me a better man. Ooh, so yeah. Why do I give you the time of day? Right. And that's ultimately why Socrates is in this dialogue on erotic, because none of the speakers, none of the figures can inspire in him this desire to to ascend. And that's why he's not turned on by them. There's nothing. He gets hard on philosophy. He gets hard on the forms, but none of them can help him reach that so you know he's softcore porn or whatever right it's it's not the thing i will say we've almost been going three hours by the way do you have one more quote do you want to end on no i think we could possibly close there but i do think it's good to bring that out that quote that that quote encapsulates socrates why he rebuffs alcibiades and i don't think alcibiades knows how to respond, right? Because Alcibiades is, he's the playboy. He knows himself to be beautiful. He g It's funny because he gives him the gift that can't be reciprocated. It's like a yeah. potlatch in miniature in that mm -hmm. sense. Look, I've given you this. I've given you the desire for virtue. What can you give me in return? You can't match my gift that I've just like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, Yeah, I mean, Socrates is, he's not fixated on getting that his rocks off you know getting another beautiful body he's already moved on from yeah. beautiful bodies and so it would take something more something beyond the jouissance of the organ 
since you were bringing that up something earlier. sublime the sublime I think, I think now i kind of see why you were associating feminine jouissance and, and socrates right i kind of I mean, the... see i kind of see what you're doing i see what you're getting at now and at the end of the dialogue one of the last things we hear about is socrates goes into a kind of trance after aristophanes and agathon fall asleep listening to him discourse about why tragedy writers should be able to write comedies and vice versa he leaves and then he goes and stands you know in in this trance in this meditative trance in this kind of it's an ecstasy he has an ecstasy we Anorexia. don't get to hear we don't get to hear about what he is meditating on what he is ecstatically experiencing that's beyond the realm of description and that's what we have to fill in so i think that you're right to i now see what you're getting at where He's forgone the pleasures of the body and the jouissance of the organ. And that allows him to kind of experience the other face of God. One of the other faces of God, as Lacan says. So that's good. Well, that will wrap up this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Adams. The very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity. Which is the whole state of things in view of violence without object anymore. This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. What I meant is the following. With nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in a block work orange.